Well, this is uh, issue three on uh, church mission, and the notebooks on uh, the, the the whole theme is uh, the mission, but then we're looking at uh, 12 issues related to that overall theme, and so we've looked at uh, the first two issues, uh, the first one being uh, God's reign, and that a thread throughout scripture, but then uh, last week in issue two looked at uh, Christ's work and uh, how that relates to the reign of God and the mission of the reign of God. But now, issue three, the role of the church in God's, in God's plan. So if, you, uh, uh, if you'll look at the uh, questions on step five, page 22, let's see if we can't uh, learn together a bit <coughs> as we discuss these. In those case studies, uh, we had one about Dave, one about Andy, and they reveal two sorts of problems, one theological, the other practical, that people often have with the church. So what are those problems, and how would you help uh, Dave and Andy? So uh, Dave's theological problem was he's talking to a friend, right, and, uh, well, uh, and a Muslim friend, and the uh, issue comes up of, you know, there apparently God had a plan B with the church that was uh, didn't work out with Israel. <laughs> so the church comes into play as, as sort of a plan B because Israel failed. So what's to say or who's to say uh, the church hasn't failed and we need now a plan C? And plan C would be Muhammad and uh, Islam and uh, the establishment of a moral society, uh, a sort of kingdom of God uh, that is uh, Islam, Islamic. So that was the, the one theological problem. And uh, Andy, uh, excuse me, Dave, had conceded uh, that idea that Israel was uh, you know, plan A, that failed, so the church became plan B. So that's the, uh, the issue there. And then the Andy uh, issue is uh, he's a relatively new convert says they had a prof that uh, got him all excited in college about uh, the church and the moral teachings of Christ and implementing those to uh, really establish uh, the moral kingdom of Christ based upon uh, his teachings and yet in the church he doesn't see that uh, so his life in the church is different than the ideal that he was he was drawn to so he goes you know, to churches, but he's only there for a little while. Then he meets, uh, gets to know people, uh, their problems, their hypocrisy, at least as he defines it, and uh, ends up getting disenchanted and wanting to find something else. Right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of the deal? Okay. So that, that, those are the issues, the theological, practical issue. The thing we should discuss then is how would you help those guys? So let's start with Dave. How would you help Dave with that theological problem, the plan A, plan B, That's great. That's very good. 
So you're saying he's, uh, he uh, bought into the premise, you know, that, yeah, Israel was a failed plan, now God had to come up with something else. Yeah, <laughs> right, once he agreed to that, he's lost it, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, your point about uh, where, where you are uh, in terms of a church and what you're being taught and all of that and how that will come into play then in, uh, from time to time as issues arise in your life or in relationships is, is true. You know, they, he, uh, he apparently was not under sound enough teaching to catch that. Uh, so, yeah, good. Anybody else? What would you say to, uh, to Dave? Gene would say, hey, that whole premise of, uh, you know, Israel was, you know, plan A, but it went, went awry is uh, not quite right. You know, this... He just doesn't have the full picture You know, the, uh, the article, Joel White, I think, was the, the, if you had a chance to read that article, uh, man, I, I thought that was, that was just an excellent article. If you didn't get a chance to read it, I encourage you to do so. But uh, he, covers, he covers all the bases. And, uh, yeah, covered a lot of ground and uh, really, really helpful and I think accurate as well. Carl? Of trying to win. Of trying to win that argument. You'd never do that, but yeah, I've heard I've heard about people. Sure, yeah. I mean, your wife might do it, but you you would never do it. <laughs> That's a good observation. Mentioned that he had talked to several people before in his dorm, and almost like a little cocky. Hmm. He knew what they were thinking. That's a good point. He knew the Muslim beliefs, but he did. Ah. And like Carl said, you know, basically live the Christian lifestyle. That's yeah. more of a witness than ah. setting down in the faith of someone. Ah. Excellent. Well, I would I would say the problem was not that he knew a little bit of Islam, it's that the other guy knew some of Christianity. Because uh, there are plenty of Muslims who don't know anything about Christianity, or, or just the very basics, yeah. and and 
you know, you can give them gospel truth for the first time. But, but I have spoken with uh, a couple before who knew enough to joust with you, and they, they knew some of the conflicts that, that even denominations or Christians have had historically with each other. And, you know, the position of the church in Israel is certainly one of them. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to go on the offense a little bit. I mean, there's, if you read, from my understanding, I haven't read much of it, but the Quran has tons of errors and switches where the prophet says, go do this. No, wait, no, do this. All right, embrace the foreigners. No, kill the foreigners. There, there are multitude of contradictions in that. So for him to say, you know, oh, your God changed his mind is, is, is ridiculous. And... You know, I mean, you can start there with the inherent inconsistency of his view, and then yes, of course, you, you know, live live a gospel life. But you may not have much of an opportunity. What you know, what if he's just someone that you ran into at a coffee shop and you're not going to see again? He's not going to get to see your life. He needs to get a dose of gospel truth. You know, in some ways, yes, butting heads against the false system of his belief. You know, he probably had a little bit of pride going there too, because you know. Obviously, with him, I mean, with him going, uh, you know, yeah, you're probably right about the Plan B thing. This shows his, uh, he's the, so what is the what is the right balance on that? This is a good point you guys are bringing up. Uh, well, it's not always about winning a, a debate. Okay. Sure. You're playing a seat. Yeah. So you might put doubt in his mind. Did you hear what he said? Could you hear what yeah, he said? Put a, put a stone. Say again, John. Put a stone in the shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that over a while. Yeah. So yeah, okay. So it's not about it's not about uh, winning the debate. So that's an excellent point, and it's easy to get carried into that. You know, I just want to have an uh, get my intellectual fix, you know, by winning the debate. And it may well be that uh, Dave was into that, given that history about having discussions with uh, Muslims in the past and thought he knew a lot about it and all of that. So that's a, that's an excellent point, and it's a danger that we can fall into. On the other hand, uh, wouldn't you say that to the best of our ability, we want to make sure that whoever we're talking to has an accurate understanding, comes away with an accurate understanding of what Christianity claims. So, you know, Dave, yeah, probably was, that's a, I, I actually hadn't, I didn't think about that, but I think that's probably accurate now that you guys mention it, given the way the story unfolds, that he probably was into winning the argument and too into winning the argument. Oh, and I don't have much doubt about that, given my own interactions with uh, Muslim friends. That uh, uh, they 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 uh, they they know some things about Christianity and some points of vulnerability. Uh, they they at least think, and so they'll bring those to the table to try to win win that thing. I've had that at least happen a number of times. Uh, but having said all that, we still want to make sure that whoever we're talking to comes away from our discussion with an accurate understanding of what it is we claim. And Dave's major failing was he gave an inaccurate understanding uh, of that. So he may well have been motivated by wanting to win the argument, but he also gave false information about it. You know, it's not this plan B, plan plan C thing. Uh, and as it relates to, then to Muslims, 
you know, as you, if you find yourself, uh, and certainly in the Detroit area, it's, it's not unusual to find yourself in the company of Muslim co-workers or neighbors or, and uh, knowing a little bit about uh, their apologetic tact uh, and, uh, and uh, being able to give them, uh, reorient their understanding of Christianity is a very good thing to do. Uh, one of the things, I'll, I'll just address a few of them, that I've encountered, um, to Zach's point about there being a you know a number of errors in the in the Quran. There are there are errors in the Quran. That whole thing about Muhammad saying do this, no, scratch that, do do that. Uh, actually, if you lay out the Quran chronologically, uh, then it then it lays out pretty it lays out pretty well, uh, because what happens uh, is when he's saying kill the infidels. He doesn't say that until chronologically he's in power, which is actually a bit of a, quite an indictment, actually, because the teachings, uh, as it relates uh, from Muslims to non-Muslims, shift depending on how much power he has. At the beginning, he's a minority, uh, and a persecuted minority at that. So the teachings are much softer, but then uh, as he gains power, now it becomes uh, much more violent. Uh, so there's a consistency to it, actually. But it follows this chronology and you know, where he happens to be in terms of being persecuted, a minority, or in, in power. So that's one. And then there are just some out-and-out -out errors. I mean, Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus, in the Quran, uh, turns out to be uh, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister. I'm not making that up. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, you, you're missing that by about 1,500 years uh, uh, there. So, and, and the Quran actually actually says that. The Quran uh, says that Jesus did not die uh, on the cross. Um, so it appeared he died, but he didn't really die, says the, says the Quran. So the idea that you can have any kind of consistency between Islam and Christianity when the heart, of course, Christianity is that Christ died uh, on the cross. And Islam claims in the Quran, directly claims, that he did not uh, die on the, on the cross. And the other thing uh, that Muslims claim, uh, and, and, and the Quran claims, is that Jews, uh, the Jews have corrupted the Injil. That's what they call the scriptures. But the Jews have corrupted the, the scriptures. So that what we have as the scriptures are not accurate because they've been corrupted by the Jews. Um, so, you know, what do you what do you say to that? Uh, my answer to I've had multiple Muslim friends say this to me that you know the Bible doesn't say a whole lot of good things. Jesus' day, his his chief opponents were the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders. So even in the Bible, it you know, shows what crumbs these guys were, and, and they've corrupted the, the Scriptures. So what you have in your Bible is, is just not accurate. Um, you know, my answer to that is, well, if, if they did that by your own standard, if they corrupted it, it did a really lousy job, right? Because they still somehow left in there <laughs> this crummy profile of them, <laughs> right? I mean, if you're going to corrupt the thing... You think you would have been able to do a little bit better job than that and make yourself look a little bit better 
than what they did. So on the one hand, you're saying, look, your own Bible shows that these guys are no good, and therefore they've corrupted this. Well, the fact that it shows they're no good probably shows they didn't really, they didn't corrupt it, that it actually shows the facts, warts and warts and all. But those are claims that they make. Which is, which is the other thing. They've got a real chronological problem because, you know, it's not until the 7th century that uh, Muhammad and thus Islam comes on the scene. So, you know, you, you, but you've got the manuscripts of the New Testament that, that predate, predate all of that. So they've got a problem. They've got a problem there as well. So the only point I'm making with all that is it's good if you get time to be able to, whoever you're talking to, whether a Muslim or anybody else, to be able to make sure they come away with an accurate understanding of Christianity. You know, Miriam was not the mother of Jesus, okay? It'd be good to point that out. <laughs> um, uh, that Central to Christianity is that Christ died on the cross. So if you've got a book that says he didn't, then there's no way you're going to be able to harmonize those. I mean, if nothing else, at least get that stuff straight, you know? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, don't make winning the argument your major objective. And in our sin, frankly, we, in our pride we can end up doing that. So it's an excellent observation. Anything else about Dave before we move on to Andy? Should have told him that. that. Yeah, right. Right. It's a challenge for me to be ready in every in every case. Mm. What would you guys say to Ed on that? You know, lots of encounters over the years where you come away and go, "Oh man, I wish I would have remembered to tell him that," or "I wish I'd known to tell them that," or you know, or something like that. Well, you know, a couple things. One is, uh, you know, I know you. I know your understanding of of the gospel, and you have a thorough understanding of the gospel. If you've got that, you're in pretty good shape, number one, because you're never, none of us are ever going to be able to answer every objection somebody has. Somebody's always going to come up with something you hadn't heard, you know. So you'll, you'll never be prepared in that sense for every encounter. But here's the other thing. You know, you've had dozens of those, you know, over the years. And... Right, some of these people you've lost track of. You don't even, uh, you know, they they moved on. You don't know where they are. It'll be interesting uh, when we are in heaven to see how many of those people got sick of that stone in their shoe, <laughs> you know, and actually looked into it, looked into that some more. And your encounter with that person actually played a role in that, you know. So. You know, we're not uh, always able to, uh, and often not able to, seal the deal, so to speak. Uh, But if we can uh, give them an accurate understanding, and then, uh, as you guys have been pointing out, model, be what you are, model Christianity in front of them, then who knows how the Lord might use that in the future in that person's life. So don't be discouraged when you don't see the result right away. Yeah, right. So why couldn't you ask him, so are you, are you saying that God made a mistake? Yeah. And 
Sure. Yeah. That would have been a good path to, to take, yeah. So then what is that how does that reflect on God? What do you right. Yeah. Very good. <clears throat> what about Andy? You know, Andy's had this ideal of the of the church, then he goes to church. It doesn't fit this ideal, so he's kinda going from place to place. How would you uh try to correct him? His practical problem there. There you go. Okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yes, sir. I was going to say that, um, like you told us, that we're trying to perfect church that won't work. That's right. <laughs> Just that that professor inspired him, so he should be involved in the church, inspiring other people, and he should be part of the solution. Yeah. And uh, did you guys hear what John said of? Uh, you know, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, because <laughs> you'll mess. Because it'll be imperfect all of a sudden. <laughs> so don't mess it up. But uh, but also be a part of the solution. And that's what his wife, that's what Andy's wife, right, uh, said to him. When are you going to start complaining and start being a part of the part of the solution? So so yeah, that's that's one. What else might you say to him? Sometimes he dislikes the people in the church. He says the church has its own agenda. Sometimes I think when we deeply dislike things about ourselves, we radiate them outwards mm. to other things and to other people. Mm. We may look at something and we say, I dislike this, this, and this, and this, but what we're really saying is that I dislike that about myself. I mm. don't know that yet, sure. but that's what I'm doing. My question to Andy would be, is he the one having his own? Hmm. Whatever that may look like. Hmm. You know. And I think I would just tell Andy to look inward and examine. Huh. And, and just leave it at that. Or if nothing else, to at least, like his wife said, to attempt to at least try. Huh. How do you know if the related to what you're saying, Carl, you know, in Andy, let's let's evaluate. Let's evaluate what's going on in you and what you're what agenda you might be bringing. How, how, how can you criticize something? How can you evaluate something unless you have a standard against which to do that? So if we're going to talk about the church, then one piece of advice for Andy is, you know, do, do, do you feel comfortable that you have an accurate biblical understanding of the church and what it is? I mean, he's got what his prof told him. But, but think about this. <clears throat> what his prof was apparently focused on, uh, as I read the story, was the ethical teachings of, of Jesus, which, of course, is a great thing to be focused on. But how many churches were there at the time Jesus was <laughs> laying down these ethical teachings? The answer is none. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> okay. Now, the church, of course, should, in its life, strive to reflect consistency with the teachings of, of the Lord, of course, the Lord of the church. Uh, but uh, the Bible spilled a lot of ink uh, subsequent to the earthly ministry of Jesus about what the church is and how the church fits into God's plan, a la Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that we, that we had to look at. You know, this is all after the earthly ministry of Jesus. So, Andy, do you have an understanding of that? Do you understand, you know, in uh, the redemptive history, 
uh, in the term that Joel White used, you know, where does the church fit into all of that? And if not, then before you're too critical about the church, take some time to gain an understanding about that, then evaluate your own church, like we all should be doing. You know, are we carrying out and are we striving to be what the Bible says that the New Testament church is supposed to be? So he doesn't have a good standard to uh, compare it to uh, in order to do an accurate evaluation of the, of the church. Anything else for Andy? Well, sure. <laughs> well, that's right. It's, and and, and uh, it's a work in progress, right? That's the other thing then. The Bible presents the church that very way. You know, it doesn't present the church at all as any kind of completed project. That's what the consummation is about. That's what the end is about. That's what, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb going to the last book of the Bible is about. You know, as, as the, the bride of Christ, the church, you know, is presented to Christ, the, the bridegroom. So, you know, we're we're in process here. And that process gets pretty can get pretty ugly uh, sometimes, and in fact often. <clears throat> but that's not an indictment against the concept of the church. Uh, it's quite consistent with the way the Bible presents where the church is. All right, look at number two. How would you respond uh, to these statements in light of what we looked at from Ephesians chapters 1 through 3? I don't need the church. I get more out of taking my Bible and guitar to the lake than I do out of the worship services. So um, how they got Dave Allen's quote in here, I don't, I don't know. I told you. <laughs> I told you. 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 Hey, you don't show up, man. You get nailed, okay? I mean, especially if you don't show up because you're hanging out at Fantali's house, all right? <laughs> so what would you say to, to somebody who says that? Sir? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't need the church, and I've got my own way of doing it. Yeah, good, excellent observation. Very good. But he needs the fellowship of the people, other okay. okay. And the accountability, and there might be somebody there that needs yeah his fellowship. So the, the Allah's got the individualistic right. me agenda going on, but the truth is. He, need, he needs to be a part of other people and a part of other people that he needs and they need, like you're saying, right? So it's that mutuality of, uh, of ministry to one another that the church is. But what about this, you know? Guys, I tell you, we really ought to get this down because <clears throat> that kind of stuff is... <laughs> I, I, can, I had a guy almost tell me that. I mean, it wasn't the guitar necessarily, but it was... I. I don't need to go to church. Uh, I, I visited this guy. I was a relative of somebody in the church at the time. He was uh, he was uh, had been bedridden for a while because he'd uh, contracted an illness. 
And so he was willing to at least let me come and visit him, <clears throat> this guy. And uh, so I did. I'd met him a few times at church functions and so on, but nice guy. And I just said, hey, where are you with the Lord? You know, let's, let's talk about that. And, uh, and he says, you know, I think, I think I'm good with God. You know, you've heard, you've heard that. And uh, I said, well, how do, how do you know that? On what basis do you say that? You know, let's, let's talk about it a bit. And anyway, we got, ended up getting to, to church. Actually, he did. And uh, me being a pastor, he figures I'm going to push church on him, I guess, which is, wasn't what I was going to do. But, but he says, uh, you know, I really think, and this is almost verbatim, I really think I can be just as close to God when I'm out in nature as when I'm at church. And I, my answer to him was, well, let's say I agree with you on that. I mean, one that probably surprised you, right? <laughs> but let's say I agree with you on that. What difference would it make if I agree with you? Because neither of us gets to roll our own. And uh, neither of us gets to make it up. I mean, church is, whose idea is church? That's really what we ought to start with. And if it's God's idea, then we need to let God define, one, what it is, and the importance that it has. So the truth is, you and I could agree on that, and it still wouldn't make any difference. Because we're not the ones who decide what the church is. So really then the question is, do you, do you believe Scripture has, has come from God? And if it has come from God, have you looked into what God says about the church? And that was what I asked him about it. And he had not, and he had never, I know it's real simple, but he had never thought of it that way. Uh, never thought of it that way. He, he actually started coming to church out of it. Started growing in the Lord, and then moved up north after about a year or so. Uh, so, but anyway, there are lots of people who do that. You know, a relationship with God is not about church. That's what they say. And uh, it is not certainly only about church. A relationship with God can be initiated outside of church. A relationship with God can be cultivated and should be outside of church. Uh, but the church plays a major role in that. And who decides what that role ought to be? It ought to be it's going to have to be God. Uh, so I'm just encouraging you guys to bear that in mind because you will encounter that. You know, people who say, I, I don't really need the church. I can be close to God without it. And then you're going to have to kindly kind of push back on that and just say, you know, who, who gets to decide the role of the church and, and where the church fits into that? How would you answer somebody if they have a home church, but it's just their family? We're dealing with something like a fast church that yeah. they left a bad situation and they don't want to jump into another one, but you have to. Right be part of a church. Right. And uh, my answer to that would be similar in that from whom are we going to be able to get a definition of a church? From where are we going to get that? Well, the answer is going to need to be Scripture. And then if we agree with that, then we need to say, well, what does the Scripture tell us the components of a, a local church are? And what you just described as... I get my family together and call it church, doesn't fit that description. So what I would say is, you're calling something church that doesn't fit the biblical definition of church. Now, churches can meet in homes. Valid churches, of course, can meet in homes. In fact, the early church did meet in homes. So the issue here is not where we're meeting. The issue is, what is the constitution of? Uh, how is that so-called church comprised? 
And uh, if, it, if it doesn't fit the definition of church in Scripture, well, there's your problem. Um, and yet, we got lots of, yeah, you're right, we got lots of people doing that. Uh, I, I know. I mean, take, for example, this guy. So he's got his family there. He's the leader of this thing, I guess, then, right? And is he, is he ordained? Ah, you know, so much for that. <laughs> All right, well, I, just, I think that it's more of a fear of getting hurt, but, I mean, it's, we, we try to explain it to him as if it's a divorce. Yeah. You know, two, two parties get a divorce, husband and wife. They don't shut themselves in the house. That's it's, a good point. You, know, you, you move on. You learn yeah. from your experience. But yeah. It's so hard to try to convince them that this, that they need to belong to a church. And they said, well, we do church at home. That's more of a Bible study. Yeah, they're, they're using church, the word church, in a non-biblical way. So we got, you'd have to address that. But then having addressed that, let's say they say, okay, you know, you're right. We're still hurt. All right. So we still got the practical problem of the hurt. And that, that can be a real deal. For sure, right? So, but that could be addressed. I mean, I, I would say if somebody's in that situation, they've been in a church situation that went south, they really got hurt by that, they're afraid of that, the emotions are still raw, all of that, that if somebody came to me <clears throat> and said, this is what we went through, this is what happened, man, we're dying, <clears throat> but we know we need to be in a church, and we know God's going to work through this, you know, and eventually we'll heal, but right now we're wounded, and we're hurting. So, what I would want to work out with them is a, a, a situation where they can just come and hang out, you know, for for a while, without worrying about, you know, getting involved, getting uh, involved in uh, the church and the life of the church full throttle, very quickly, uh, because they're wounded, and they need some time to get bandaged up and heal. But this is a great hospital to do that. <laughs> okay, so come to our hospital, you know, convalesce. And let's nurse you back to health, and then go from there. That's what they ought to do. They ought to go to a church, a real church, and talk to the leadership about that. And if the leadership is leadership, godly leadership, they'll want to try to help these people where they are, you know, and get them where they need to go, right? But just be upfront about it. Just say, hey, when we come, we're going to need some time. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of people are opting for mega churches. One reason. Because, so, I mean, there's two extremes. One, opt for, it'll just be us in our house. But the other one is the mega church where I can just go in and I don't have to get involved in any of the stuff of the church. I can just go in, I can sit in the back, I can take off, right? And I'm not totally unsympathetic to that for the person especially who's been wounded. <clears throat> but the better approach to take would be, I believe, to talk, be up front, with the leadership of the church about where you are, what, how you're hurting, and let's figure out a way to help you heal. Right. Anything else? Well, look at the next one. The church should focus on getting people saved. We should leave teaching, helping the poor, counseling, and so forth to organizations that specialize in them. They do a much better job anyway. What would you, uh, what would you say to that? It goes to the heart of the mission. Okay. I mean, everything that's been covered in very well of the last couple of weeks, it's pushing us forward. What is the church? It's supposed to carry out the mission of the gospel mm. of Christ in, in 
you know, in our local area, and then as we can expand our influence to, you know, to other parts of the world. But um, you know, each of those things needs to be with the gospel mindset that we're doing this to further the mission of the gospel. And and so and it's a, it's a great question, and I'm wrestling through that myself the last couple of years. Like, how much does it, you know is proper for a church to get involved with, but if a church can't, I'll just say this at the very minimum, yeah. if a church can't tie one of their ministries to the gospel, yeah. to the goal of making and maturing disciples yeah. of Jesus Christ, yeah. then it might be time to cut the ties on it, or never start in the first place. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's good. I mean, look at the church's whole purpose is to spread the gospel, I mean, God saves the church That's not certainly true. But what about these other things, though? Where okay, so the the church is about proclaiming the gospel. But then, what about these other things? What about the teaching? What about the counseling and and that kind of stuff that they mention here? I don't know. I took it. You know, we don't have all the context here, but um, I mean, like counseling, you know. I took it as that's the, this is the church's job. That you know, to take care of the poor. I'd much rather yeah, go get sound counsel from you yeah. than to go to a sure just a regular psychiatrist. I mean, they're yeah. going off of worldly, worldly views. Yeah, and they're gonna yeah go wrong way. Yeah, I, I thought so too. That you, that you proclaim the gospel, you know, come to Jesus, an evangelistic message. But then the teaching stuff and, and all of that. But and maybe that may be that may be. But let's just assume that it was. You know, teaching is is less important than giving people the gospel, evangelistically seeing people saved. And there are churches, plenty of churches like that. Every Sunday morning is an evangelistic. Uh, uh, event and uh, so that what happens with the people in the pew then is they don't grow a whole lot because what they get is a steady diet of these kind of simplified gospel appeals you know which might be fine in themselves but that's all if that's all you're doing one answer to this would be this think about the great commission and Jesus says go and make disciples now, and then I'll quote the rest of it, remind you of the rest of it. But he says, go and make disciples, not go and make uh, converts. Those are, those, are not, those are not necessarily the same thing. I mean, at the point of conversion is the point I get saved. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He says, make disciples. And then he gives uh, three participles that say, here's how you make disciples. Uh, by going, uh, and by baptizing, and by teaching. That's actually grammatically the way Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is laid out. Go and make disciples. And actually, literally, it's as you are going, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, do you guys remember what? To observe everything that I've commanded you. <laughs> So this idea that 
we can just give the gospel to see people saved, secure professions of faith, conversions, but divorce that somehow from teaching is a violation of the Great Commission itself. Jesus in his final instructions, before he ascended back to the Father, those are his instructions. Make disciples of all nations. And do that by baptizing and by teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So that whole teaching piece of it, beyond simply the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel message, uh, the teaching now in the gospel and the implications of the gospel for Christian maturity is part of the Great Commission, right? And that's something that you know a lot of people don't, as I say, don't get. And uh, it's very dangerous because, hey, I'm saved. That's all that matters. <coughs> if the church thinks that's all that matters, <laughs> then you're going to produce people who think that's all that matters. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I, made, I prayed the prayer. I sealed the deal with Jesus. I got the fire insurance or, you know, whatever. And, uh, yeah, but then there's this whole teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So the church should focus on getting people saved. What the church should focus on is the glory of God. And the glory of God is achieved in a bunch of ways, including, yes, people being converted, but also people becoming like Christ. And that happens through a bunch of these activities, teaching and counseling and that kind of stuff, right? What else would you, anything else you would say to that? Yeah, and, uh, you know, this has been a sticky thing. You say the organizations. That's right, it's a state here, right. So there's a name for organizations that are outside the church but are doing churchy kinds of functions. Uh, It's called para-church. Para means beside, beside the church. So you have para-church organizations. And some really good para-church organizations, you know, that I thank the Lord for, frankly. Uh, with just some of the stuff they're doing, but it, but but the, our friends who are involved in parachurch organizations need to be very careful, because God didn't. You read through the New Testament, and you look at the institutions that God ordained to carry out His work, and how many do you find? I mean, you, you find you know you find the you find the church right. I mean, this Ephesians makes it very clear the church is where the action is. The church is God's idea. The church is the means by which God is carrying this out. Not para-church. The church. So I don't harp on that. I'm not one of those guys. I mean, it's a losing battle anyway. So, and, and you know, some of the books we have you know, on the shelf here were published by para-church organizations. <laughs> and they're helping the church do its job better. And to the extent that an organization exists to do that, you know, praise the Lord. Take counseling. You know, you've got, we got some counseling books back here. You know, I purchased a bunch of this stuff from a parachurch group that helps me and helps our church then do counseling better. Uh, so that's a, that's a very good thing. But those things can become ends in themselves and not just be beside the church, can be really separated from the church, and it becomes a problem. So, Pete, to your question, what, what are these organizations grounded on? And uh, if you're not a church but you're carrying out ministry... You need to be very careful that you don't become a competitor 
to the church somehow. You know, and let me just ask a related question. What do you, what do you think about giving? You know, I've, I, I don't think I've ever, I'm sure I've never said anything about this. Pretty sure. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not a gigantic deal to me, but you know, I think people ought to think about that. If, uh, and, and I have no earthly idea, I never ask her, and, and frankly don't care that much, but because that's between them and the Lord, but as a principle for us to think about, before the Lord as you use the uh, resources God has provided to you. Where are you going to give those? To what institution or institutions are you going to give those? And what happens is many people get caught up in parachurch organizations and they give their money to that when I think if you follow a biblical model, you know, you'd be better off giving that money to the church so that the church can carry out the mission that God's uh, given us here. So a lot of related issues to that whole parachurch thing. All right, look at number three. With all the racial tension, maybe it'd be better if whites, African Americans, Hispanics didn't try to worship God in the same church. <laughs> I actually, I actually did not. <laughs> I did not. But, but you know, that was that was certainly uh, something that was at work with Paul when when he says there in Second. Uh, Corinthians 5, where he says, I no longer uh, look at people the way I did. Because, you know, he, he was a, well, in that resume he has from Philippians 3, about being a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, you know, so he, there's the Jews and there's everybody else. <laughs> and that's the way he looked at it. So that's what was in my mind, because that's really what was going on with him. Uh, but in principle, then, of course, that same thing applies not to the Jew, just Jew-Gentile, but it applies to every other uh, distinction amongst humanity that those are superficial distinctions. And the significant distinction and the most significant distinction is believer and unbeliever. You know, those are in Christ and those are outside of Christ. So, no, I didn't have that in mind. But, but this, is, this is more of a deal than you might think. I mean, it's thank the Lord. It's becoming less of a deal, and certainly in our country. But... Uh, <laughs> In, uh, in Baptist circles, in fundamentalist circles, this idea of separating people based upon uh, outward appearance has been a deal. And been a deal just up until just even recently uh, that there have been, uh, you know, fundamentalist colleges that shall remain nameless, that, you know, that have had dating policies that say that... Uh, you, uh, you know, a white person can't uh, date an African-American person. Uh, they've had policies like that. And uh, they've, you know, said things like this, made these kind of practical arguments that, you know, it's, I've heard this. You know, if they, you know, if they do that, it's, it's just going to be hard for them. It's, you know, they have kids, and now they've got this, you know, this kid who's, you know, uh, biracial. And, you know, what, how, what, how's life going to go for that kid? You know, down the road, I've, I've heard those arguments now. You don't hear them as much now, but 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I used to hear those kind of pragmatic sorts of arguments. So what would you, what would you say to that? About how, how important is the, the need for racial and ethnic and other kinds of demographic, demographics? How, how important is harmony and visible harmony in those areas to the mission of the church, do you think? Sir? I fell back on 
That's good, man. That's no. Yeah, that's very good. It's very good. It's excellent. Which is, I was just going to ask a question along those lines. All right. So that being the case, because as you guys did your the work in this, you saw that part of the mission that God has is to see, you know, you get to Revelation and there'll be people from what every tribe every tongue, every nation. I mean, it's really important for God to point that out. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all, what? All nations, right? So this is a big theme in Scripture. So you're moving from one nation, Israel. You're moving to all nations. This has been God's plan all along. No plan B. But now that plan is going into a new phase with the church. And so it's to be all nations. It's going to be every tribe and tongue and nation. So that visible unity of people that are from different tribes and tongues and nations is, 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 is demonstrating the wisdom of the church and the beauty of the church that, Ephesians 3, the angels marvel at, says Ephesians 3. They look at that and they go, how can those people be all together, <laughs> right? Okay, so that's a big part of it. And yet here we are on Sunday morning, and it's, you know, 98%, 99% us. So Gene says, I wish we were more diverse racially. So it does raise a question then for us. If that's a big deal to God, the every tribe and tongue and nation thing, and then here we are and we're 99% us, the same, have we, have we failed in that? Um, how, how should we view that? And it's okay to say we failed at that. If we if we have, then and then we want to find out what we can do about it. But have we failed with that? What what's your what do you think? Because yeah, I, we can say I wish that. I think you have to look demographically. Yeah, so our location has a lot to do with I mean, our, our, <laughs> the demographic location is not. It's about ninety eight percent, but it's changing yeah. every day. So we as a church might be changing. Yeah. Every day, because of the demographic of our location. Yeah. Okay. It goes to an identity issue too, um, it, because it's not just you know the church could could do all manner of things. If people see their identity as first, I'm this race, or first, I'm this you know economics you know 
stratum, mm-hmm. like then if they're not seeing their identity in Christ, yeah, then hopefully the church can help people yeah. see your identity. You're making twenty thousand dollars a year. Your identity is in Christ. You got a raise. You got a raise. <laughs> your identity in Christ. You know, you were born in the ghetto. Yeah. You were born in you know the suburb. Your, your identity is in Christ. But you know that that'd probably be a good place to start. Is That's a good point. I think we do. We talk about our identity. Yeah, That's a good point. Kind of off, track, but just on curiosity, what is uh, like in our city? What is their kind of mixture? They have a mixture there. Not much. I've never been in the school. I, you know, no, no, not much. Uh, about yeah, not much, not much. And their their uh, neighborhood, you know, is changing yeah. fairly rapidly, so they're having to adjust to that. Uh, it's another sister church, you know that has a school my girls go to that school and so that's what gene's asking about and runs a seminary uh but no they're they're like we are you know and they've been that way for decades but their neighborhood was primarily like that for decades like you're saying but now the neighborhood's changing now the upside is i know that they've they've had some you know ministries to try to they have some ministries now even to try to make connections with people that they haven't made connections with in the past uh, and hopefully that'll bear fruit in the future. But, yeah, I think it's good for us to at least think about that because that'll come up from time to time because Scripture speaks to it, and as we try to align where we are as a church with the scriptural model, and it talks about this, we're all one in Christ and God's desire for all nations and that therefore we wish we were more of a picture of diversity that way, then the question will come up. And it'll come up perhaps to you from others. Why don't we have more African-American people? Why don't we have more Hispanic people? Why don't we? You know, is there something with us? And we shouldn't dismiss that right away. Because if there, we could say, no, of course not. (laughs) There's nothing with us. So we shouldn't dismiss that. Uh, But I think what we're saying, and I'm saying, is that the fact that we don't have that is not necessarily, it's not, uh, by the fact, ipso facto, that we have a problem, it may be that the neighborhood is simply that way and we're reflecting the way the neighborhood is. But um, neighborhoods are changing all the time, as Don says. Thank the Lord that he's brought us at least some African-American brothers and sisters, you know, and over time that'll probably increase in the in the Trenton area. So we need to make sure that we're people who are concentrating on, hey, our identity is in Christ, it's not in these other things. And like Paul this morning, we no longer see people the way we did through these superficial outward sorts of things. We see them uh, the same as fellow travelers on the journey, which is kind of what Carl was saying. You know, this is where I am, and uh, this is where the Lord has brought me. And if he's brought you to the same place, I don't really care what, whether you're brown or black or, or whatever it is. All right, look at the next one. I'm looking forward to heaven. We can finally leave that embarrassing and all-too-human institution called the church behind (laughs) and get on with the business of worshiping God. So what do you say? I fell back in Ephesians 4 again. Verse 19, Paul talks about spiritual apathy. Paul makes a distinction.
distinction that it's not just in the next age in heaven, but this age too, that Christ has power over the church. So when I read this, I think they're missing. I'm like, don't be in a hurry to get to heaven. You know what I mean? That's kind of what I'm thinking. Because there's a lot of joys in this life too. Because mm. Paul writes that mm. Christ has authority in this age too. Mm. Because he's head of the church. Mm. But we have a responsibility in this life. And so when I look at that, to me, I see the avoidance of the responsibility, which I tie back to Ephesians 4 and say it's spiritual apathy. That's hmm. just what I take away from that. Well, that's a good, good, good thought process. Very good. Uh, in, in Philippians 1, Philippians 1, uh, Paul there talks about being torn between the two. Whether to stay here, live on earth longer or to depart and be with the Lord. And he goes through in Philippians 1 talking about, you know, yeah, frankly, be okay with me <laughs> to be beamed up, you know. And, he, and he's going through that whole thing in Philippians 1 because he's under house arrest and he's waiting for a verdict on his case. And he doesn't know what the verdict's going to be. And if the verdict is, it's over for you, Paul, then he could be departing sooner than later. Turns out he, he, he didn't to that point. He's executed later, but not at that point. But he's waiting for a verdict. So he's writing to the Philippians saying, I don't know what the verdict's going to be. And as I try to deal internally with that and emotionally with that, I desire to depart and be with the Lord. But on the other hand, I have responsibilities here as well uh, to you. And uh, it is needful for me to, to, to be with you. So he's taking that kind of realistic, you know, approach, not, not apathetic in any sense, right? He's saying that God's given me ministry, given me fruitful ministry, gives me joy in the journey in that, in that ministry in the here and now. But at the same time, he's honestly saying, of course, like I think any of us would, wow, you know, hey, if I'm gone tomorrow and I'm in the presence of the Lord, that's a beautiful thing uh, for me. But in the meantime, thank the Lord that we've got purpose, we've got ministry, we've got joy. So somebody who's just saying, boy, I'm looking forward to heaven and I'm just biding my time, apathy. And that is what a lot of Christians are doing. They're biding their time. You know, they've, they've become convinced that heaven's the, the big deal. Not ministry in the here and now, but remember, the glory of God is the big deal. And so we should be contributing to the spread of the glory of God. And if we see that as our mission, then that will counteract that tendency toward apathy. All right, look at number three. Why does a, hey, see us, sir. Why does the church so seldom live up to the biblical ideal, even in the best of, best of times? How should we respond? So why does the church so often fail to live up? Yeah. I, I just read that church is human
membership is admitted to percentage with a lot of thanks to our heart, and then the whole process can start over again. And we can be this, what is, uh, what's that article described as? Image bearers mm -hmm. in the church. Mm -hmm. Amen. We ourselves as a church can, can start the whole process over again just by remembering the gospel and just acknowledging that we're uh, right around the world, you know, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Good. So we're we're human, we're sinners. That, you know, why do we so seldom live up to the biblical ideal? Uh it's because our fallenness it gets in the way. Uh but still having said that, there are still aspects of the biblical ideal that are present in our church and hopefully in increasing fashion as we repent, as we recognize, as we uh, move forward. You were going to say, Gene? <laughs> now, here's what I want to say about that, though. Okay? Because you, anybody, all of us, I'm sure, came up with some variation of the answer. Well, we're all sinners. That's why we don't live live up to the biblical ideal. Uh, but let's be careful that it does trouble us. That to to whatever extent that I am my own life you in your life, and we in the life of the church, do not reflect the glory of God, that is the character of God, then let that bother us appropriately. Did you hear the way I said it? Let, us, let it bother us appropriately. <laughs> you know, there should be a sorrow for sin. Uh, and, and yet a recognition that I'm not going to have it all together until the next, until the next phase. Um, just as an example, Romans 7. You get at the end of Romans 7 and you remember Paul's going back and forth, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. You guys remember that back and forth at the end of Romans? That's Paul deliberating about internalizing about himself. And in some ways agonizing about his own sin and the fact that he doesn't live up to the ideal. And yet, he does this appropriately. And how do I know he does it appropriately? Because right after that is Romans 8. And in fact, he ends Romans 7 with saying, but. So he's not going to leave it at, oh, wretched man that I am, and you know the things I don't want to do, I do. He's not going to just hang and wallow there. Appropriately, then, he, he reminds himself, but I've been redeemed, you know, and I've been forgiven. So, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he ends chapter 7. And then the very first verse of chapter 8 is, there is now therefore, you guys remember that verse? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you just have this majestic chapter 8 of Romans. But it all follows <laughs> that. So, we should follow that model of Paul. We, sh we, we should not easily blow off the idea that, you know, I'm not where I am not like Christ. And it should bother me that I'm not like Christ. That, that, that I still have the manifestations of the flesh in my life and, and, that, and that I sin I should long to be rid of that. But I shouldn't wallow in that. 
then I should remind myself like Paul to thank the Lord that because Jesus lived the way I was supposed to live and because I'm united with him, therefore there's no condemnation despite the fact that I'm still struggling with sin. And here's why I bring all that up is because we should have ever before us individually and corporately as a church that we are striving for the ideal that we are striving to be the pure bride of Christ, that we are striving to be his holy people. And, you know, I've just met and talked with folks over the year who, you know, easily and, and, and blithely, you know, say, well, you know, we're all sinners and, you know, yeah, I sin and, you know, that's the way it goes. And, of course, that's true. But that shouldn't roll off our tongues so easily, Okay. Um, and so for each of us, I'm saying, because I, I would love to have leaders in our church who want to strive for that and who want to see our church as a, as a more pure church. N- not completely pure this side of heaven, but a more pure church because Ephesians 5 talks about a radiant bride being presented to Christ as the, the church. So that's what we want to. That's what we want to be, and we need leaders who understand that and want to lead God's people in that in that direction. So why does the church so seldom live up? Yeah, we're we're sinners. We're fallen. It just ain't going to happen <laughs> until we're trans completely transformed. But we should be in the process of transformation regularly. So that's the next question. How should we respond? I mean, that's my take at you know how we should respond. <laughs> Recognize the fallenness, uh, but take seriously the fallenness. And, and revel in the fact that despite our fallenness, we're God's people. And Christ has done what we could not do. So we don't wallow in that. But Lord, we, we want to make progress. We want to be more like Jesus. You know, in the end of 2014, I want to be more like Christ than I am now. And every one of us should desire that and then if we do then we as a church will be more like that and Ephesians 4 uh, tells us that this is how we achieve maturity that uh, we attain in the in the language of Ephesians 4 the full measure of Christ that is we we become fully like Christ but it's through, this, it's through this process that will ultimately have a, a glorification as part of it. All right, look at uh, number four. How do you think Paul arrived at the exalted view of the church that he gives us in the letter to the Ephesians? And then it says, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Anybody remember the gist of what it says in those verses about how he attained it? He says, this admini- I think the language he uses is, this administration was given me. And then he talks about what was given me to, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and to uh, explain the administration of the mystery of the church. I'm paraphrasing, but right? Isn't that what he says? That, that this is the commission, the task that was given to me. That's what he says in those verses. So how did he get this exalted, majestic view of the church? Christ gave it to him. <laughs> Does anybody remember, anybody know when, when Christ did that? When Christ gave that to him? You know, Paul's got this interesting career, 
right? He's, he's miraculously uh, and spectacularly, I should say, because we're all miraculously saved. Um, if you're saved, it's a miracle. <laughs> I mean, that's the direct intervention of God on <laughs> the heart of an individual. Using means, but he is moving on the heart of that individual to turn the light on. So that's a mir the miracle of the new birth. But Paul not only had the miracle of the new birth, he had a spectacular new birth. <laughs> because he's on the road to Damascus and the blinding light and encounters Jesus. And... But then he says in, uh, he says in Galatians uh, chapter 1 that he spent three years. Yes, after Damascus. After he's then converted, he spends three years being taught by none other than Jesus himself. So then when you read later in stuff like Ephesians 3, that I was given this commission, and he says to explain the administration of the mystery of, of the church. Well, where did he get that? Who gave it to him? Jesus did. So he had a, a very special commission uh, to do that, and Christ gave him this exalted view of the church very directly. And now he's passing that on in the letters that he wrote, and especially in Ephesians. All right, number five. How does the church serve as the concrete expression of God's reign? Sir? I'm going to cite the article for this one. It's all other sources. White, in his article, says that it preserves the promises of a coming redeemer, and in parentheses, by the Christ. He talks about, or rather, Paul talks about Christ tearing down the divide. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Yeah, wherever the church is gathered, you have you have the, a group of these image bearers, uh, and these uh, but but these re-imaged bearers, <laughs> because we were created as image bearers, but in Christ we're being recreated as image bearers, because you remember in White's article there's. You know, God creating, there's God creating his, his crowning achievement of creation, his humanity, made in his image, so to reflect as mirrors, he says, the uh, character of God back to God. I'm just going to stop here for a minute. As I'm reading through that article, I'm going, man, I have heard this somewhere. It's like I've taught this a thousand times. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, seriously, I'm, I'm just telling you guys, I'm reading that thing and I'm going... Did I get that from that article? Because you know we went through this book years ago, and if somebody were to ask me, you know, in, in fact, if some people have asked me, hey, where'd you get that mirror idea? You know, I've never heard anybody talk about us being mirrors reflecting back to God and all that. And, and I've just go, I, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Because <laughs> you read stuff, and then you, and then I'm reading that thing, and that just lays out what 
one, I believe, but also have taught a bunch of times. So I may have been ripping this guy off for a long time, <laughs> a long time without knowing it. But anyway, I enjoyed the article anyhow. And uh, yet, there's the fall. And this is my phrase. I don't think he says this, but the fall breaks the mirrors. And, just, and now the mirrors don't reflect God accurately. We don't reflect God back to God accurately. So the mirrors have got to be fixed. And that's, I think, a good way to think about salvation. Is we, we are in, the mirrors are being repaired. So that we, day by day, week by week, year by year, are more accurately reflecting God back to God. Being restored to that original image bearing. Now, headquarters then. You get a bunch of these mirrors that are in the process of repair. As opposed to, and it's it's a bunch of mirrors in the process of repair, gathered in assembly, a thing called the church. And remember the second article is only a page and a half. But the second article is just about what is the definition of the church. I think that was the title, something to that, that effect. And it was just pointing out that the Greek word for church is ekklesia, called out ones who then are called out of the world and who assemble together and, and carry out Christ's mission. So yeah, that's what you've got. You've got this beautiful thing then, a concrete expression of God's reign because you've got these people who are being recreated, recreated in the image of God. Mirrors that are broken but are in the process of being repaired. And in contrast to the world, which are broken mirrors that are not being repaired. So the, the contrast should be evident. When you get a bunch of these image bearers together that are being recreated and mirrors that are being repaired in assembly together at headquarters, wherever that is, in a given locale, then it ought to be quite a dynamic there. And it ought to be evident to anyone who comes, that there's something different with these guys and gals. Uh, and, if, and, if, and if it's not, if the church doesn't look different than the world, then the church is miserably failing in its mission. So how is it a concrete expression of God's reign? Yeah, Carlos said it well. And then that's just you know my elaboration on the, on the thing that you gather all those mirrors together that are in a process at various stages of repair. And that sh uh, is a beautiful thing and should be a beautiful thing. All right, lastly, number six, describe the mission of the church as it relates to God's eternal plan. So what would you say? The mission of the church as it relates to God's eternal plan. Okay. So what does the church, the mission of the church do? God wants to work through it as we carry out that mission. So how does the mission of the church then achieve God's eternal plan? I guess the way I was looking at it is kind of like, excuse me, like uh, through evangelization, going yeah. making disciples of all nations and essentially creating those image bearers. Good man. 
And, and Joel White says that, I think. I think he's the one who says that toward the beginning of his article, that you, know, you have this, these churches that are gatherings, assemblies of these recreated people. But because of their recreation, because of their spiritual life, they, of necessity, go out and bear fruit. He, I mean, that's, uh, that's my way of saying it, but that's what he's saying. So be, just simply because of who we are now, then we reproduce. So the mission of the church to reflect God through the recreation that we are uh, means that we're achieving the objective of seeing a people for his very own. Remember that phrase? A people for his very own created. And, it, and expanding that number of people by seeing new converts. So one way is we're evangelizing. We're seeing more people come to Christ. But, but how else? Because remember, evangelism isn't the end game, is it? So how else does the mission of the church achieve God's eternal plan? Yeah, it's to see more people brought into the church. But what else? The church is Christ's body. His his work is done through the church. Some of the social things like feeding the poor. Being a light in general to society, to the world. Because, you know, God's eternal plan is ultimately, a la issue one, is his reign. And then what I hear you saying is, we are now this redeemed group of people over whom God reigns. And because he reigns over us, we do his bidding. We carry out his, his work. So the church is is doing that in the so we're adding members to the church over which God reigns, and we are in the here and now, gladly having God reign over us as we do his carry out his work so yeah that's a, that's another way that we're we're doing that you know let's just try to summarize it then a bit here so a lot of concepts that Joel White gave us and Paul gave us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, <laughs> all that. But as you put that whole thing together, um, God created humanity unique. And God created humanity to rule, hear this, to rule for him. But sin means that instead of ruling for him, being co-regents for God on the earth that he created. Instead of that, sin means we became competitors with God. And our allegiance is given to another king. But in salvation, our allegiance is realigned. 
and God is reestablishing his reign then through this re- redeemed humanity, this new humanity, this new society called, called the church. So the church is now doing what Adam and then his descendants were originally created to do, is to, to rule on God's behalf, to do God's bidding. And in the future, sin will be eliminated, and we will do God's bidding under his reign perfectly. Now we do it imperfectly. But in increasing measure, it should be in increasing measure, more like the way it was intended to be. I mean, that's a, that's a way to then look at what we're doing, is that uh, humanity was made to be God's ruler on his behalf, and now we are remade humanity. That's what Ephesians is teaching. John Stott is the guy who coined that new humanity uh, in the article by Joel White, calling the church God's new humanity. And uh, in the church, God's restoring Adam. So you've got a passage. Let me just share with you a couple passages. We've got five minutes left. Uh, Joel White quoted Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower. You guys remember this? But you crowned him with glory and honor. Now when Psalm 8 says that, what is man, and then says in the next line, what is the son of man? Uh, that you care for him, you could easily miss that that's that's just talking about humanity. Because when it says the Son of Man, remember Jesus called himself often the Son of Man. So when I used to read that, I used to think it was actually talking about Jesus. And you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. I thought it was talking about Jesus. But it's actually talking about humanity. What is man? And then when it says, what is the son of man? You know, that's just Hebrew parallel poetry. It's just saying the same thing in the second line that it said in the first line, in different words. So what is humanity? What's the big deal with humanity? And you crowned humanity with glory and honor. Now I just want to show you a passage related to that, and we'll quit. But in Hebrews 2, Hebrews chapter 2, And this is uh, a really cool passage of Scripture. I always hesitate when I say a really cool passage of Scripture because you know, I immediately think of, as opposed to those non-cool passages of Scripture. <laughs> but Hebrews 2. And verse 6. It uh, quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. So this is man was made for that, to reign for God. And you put everything under his feet. Now, did God do that? Did God put everything under Adam's feet? Absolutely. You read chapter 1, subdue the earth, rule over it. 
So this is how you, and then it goes on, the writer of Hebrews says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that's not subject to him. Okay, humanity's something special, at least originally. And then there's this phrase, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That one line is one of the great understatements in all of the Bible. (laughs) Humanity was made for this. Yet at present, we do not see that happening. But guys, get the next line. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But the next line says this, but we see Jesus. So here's what we don't see. We don't see humanity functioning the way humanity was made to function. But what do we see? We see Jesus. Now notice what it says about Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels? Now crowned with glory and honor. Those are the very phrases that were just used of humanity in general. A little lower than the angels. Crowned with glory and honor. So Adam was made, and his descendants were to be God's co-regents. They were to rule the earth for him. Everything was made subject to him. God left nothing that was not subject to humanity. And yet at present, we do not see that happening. But here's what we do see. We see Jesus, who was made just like Adam was. A little lower than the angels. And now crowned with glory and honor. And there's a reason that he's crowned with glory and honor. It says, because he suffered death. So we're not, now we've forfeited this glory and honor. We're not ruling and reigning for God. Humanity in general is not, as it was designed to. But we see Jesus, who is as humanity was originally made to be, And he now is crowned with glory and honor that we were made originally to to have. And here's why. Because he suffered death. And so I ask you, how does his suffering death relate? (laughs) You know, you just read these Bible phrases and you can just go over them and just not make the connections. But we have to make the connections. How does the fact that he suffered death qualify him to be crowned with glory and honor? Because that's what it's saying. The reason, the very reason he's crowned with glory and honor is because he suffered death. And here's how. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And therefore, Jesus is crowned with what Adam was made to be. That's why that because he suffered death. He suffered death because he obeyed. And that's what Philippians 2 is saying when it says, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So in Jesus' life, he obeyed. Whereas in Adam's life, he disobeyed. And Jesus is called the last. Do you remember what he's called? In, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I think it's verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15.45, he is called the last Adam. So you've got the first Adam, 
and he was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Everything was made subject to him. And yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. We all know why, because he disobeyed. But what we do see is Jesus made as human, is human, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And we see that now with Jesus, and here's why. Because he obeyed, including suffering death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what it says. So he obeyed even to the point of obedience to death on a cross. And it's through that obedience to death on a cross now that a new humanity is formed. And a people is being gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation. I'm, you know, okay, maybe it's just me, but that is a really cool passage. <laughs> Paralleling the first Adam with the, uh, with the last Adam. And then that's how we fit into it. You know, is this recreated humanity part of this thing called the church that is a concrete expression of God's reign now and will be reigning for God in the future when Christ returns. All right, we will meet next week again. If you'll do issue number four. You guys have a good week and a happy new year.